Most of you know that I grew up on a farm in Kentucky, and it was actually my grandfather's a farm property he purchased in the 1920s in a farmhouse he uh, built at that time. And like a lot of homes years ago, it had a wraparound porch. You know what I mean by a wraparound porch? Three sides totally, you know, totally surrounded by a porch. So a lot of place to run and play and sit outside, and, and we did that a lot. Uh, growing up, and that was that was pretty common. Here's a picture just of a old neighborhood in this country, and what's the common theme on those houses? Front porches, right? And not little ones, but big ones. Room to actually sit, room to actually gather and socialize, talk, and so on. Friday evening after the wedding rehearsal here, we went to a Sunday school social and from Onisa's class, and it was at uh, Jim Davis' house. And it's, it's a nice home like many homes today. And uh, we went out back, and he's got a really nice deck. That's not his. That's just a, a generic picture, okay? That's not his. Uh, a really nice deck. And then uh, down below that, a nice patio. And most of us invest a lot of effort in having a nice backyard, nice decks, patios, gathering places. That's comfortable for our family, and occasionally if we have some people over, um, we'll gather back there. Now, the new trend, and you, you see this in new neighborhoods, is to have front porches again, but they're small. And they may have a chair on them, but if you sit in it and rock, your knees are going to hit the banisters, right? And there's usually some nice flowers because they're welcoming and they're inviting. It's trying to get back to the idea that we're a neighborhood and we want to invite people in. And, and we would enjoy welcoming them in and socializing with them on the front porch if we weren't so busy being busy. But because we're busy being busy, we don't have time to do that. So rather than having something on the front where we welcome the community in, we have everything in the back for just us. And I'm not arguing right, wrong, good, bad. But that's, our, that, that's where we are as a culture pretty much, Correct. Now, what cannot be argued is that we know from social research, increasingly in American culture over the last several decades, there has been a growing social disconnect, a growing community disconnect. That during the last five, six decades, the time since the Second World War, as we have become a more prosperous people and, and so on, we've also become a much more individualistic people. And uh, there was a, and, and because of that, we're more isolated. We're more isolated than ever in American history as individuals. There was a, an article a few months ago in the Atlantic that described it this way. This is a quote, and I've got, I think I've got it on the screen for you. Um, I don't know if you can read all of that, but we volunteer less. This is all based on social research. We volunteer less. We entertain guests at our homes less often. We are getting married less. We are having fewer children, and we have fewer and fewer close friends with whom we share the intimate details of our lives. We're denying our social nature and paying a price for it. Over the same period of time that social isolation has increased, our levels of happiness have gone down, while rates of suicide and depression have multiplied. Basically, we have fewer close friends with whom we will share the details of our life than than in the past. As a culture, there's less happiness among people in America today. More suicide, more depression. 
I've preached the funerals of people who've committed suicide in the last 10 years, more of those than I have the rest of my life in ministry combined. We are an isolated, disconnected, lonely people. Now, some of you are wondering, Steve, you're back in your Peter sermon series. Peter, a man who followed Jesus, what's the connection? What's that got to do with anything? It's just this. One of the lessons from the life of Peter, one of the lessons from New Testament disciples is this. Following Jesus is a personal decision, okay? It's an individual decision. The decision to follow him is personal. The decision to follow him is individual. But actually following him is not done in isolation. Following Jesus the way he instructs us to follow him and maturing the way he defines maturity happens in relationship, not in isolation. Following Jesus means you become part of a community. You become part of a family. And God works through all of that to grow you. Listen, you can be alone and study the Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can quote scripture. You can be a great teacher. You can know all this stuff, but if you are living in isolation from other people, from other followers of Christ, you're not as mature as you think you are. Knowledge does not necessarily equate with spiritual maturity. In fact, one of the things that helps us grow as human beings is the give and take of a marriage relationship, right? I tell couples, if you're going to have a great marriage, in the give and take of that relationship, it's like looking in a mirror and all of a sudden you're going to start seeing these things about yourself that need to be refined, improved, worked on. And so because of love, you become a better you. God does the same thing to you spiritually in the context of relationships. You don't mature the way God wants you to if you're not in community, if you're not in relationships with other believers. And so we're going to talk about that today as we continue this sermon series. I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew 19. Today we're going to focus on how Peter, as he followed Jesus, set an example for us through good, good questions and bad questions, good experiences and bad experiences, but his, his life and what Jesus did in all those circumstances to teach us the importance of being connected with other believers. Now listen to me. If you are not connected on a consistent basis with other believers, this message is going to challenge you to change that because you need to change that. If the biggest part of your exposure to the Christian life is sitting in one of these chairs for one hour on Sunday, this message is going to challenge you to go deeper and do a lot more than that because while this is good and I am so thankful you are here and God uses this, this is not enough. It's not enough. So let's look at uh, what happens in Scripture. Matthew chapter 19, the, uh, the first point, there's four points today and you've got some blanks in your outline to fill in so hopefully that will help you pay attention a little bit better by filling in your blanks, okay? And uh, for those of you who are wired so that if you don't get every blank filled in, you're going to be miserable all day. If I forget one, just wave at me and I'll remember to give you the words, okay? I don't want you to leave here unhappy. All right, number one, when we follow Jesus, we gain a new family. 
When you make the decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ, become a follower of Jesus Christ, you gain a new family. Matthew chapter 19, let's begin at verse 27. Peter said to him, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. Referring to himself and the other disciples, the other twelve. What then will there be for us? Lord, we've sacrificed, we've left everything. What's our reward going to be? And Jesus in his answer says, well, Peter, here's what you're going to get. And then here's what everyone else who follows me is going to, to get. Okay? So let's, let's continue. Jesus said to Peter in verse 28, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, throne you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, okay, Peter, you and the other, you and the twelve, you and the disciples, you're my twelve. You, you, you follow me, and you've sacrificed and you've left stuff to follow me. In the kingdom, in the future, you will have a prominent role. You, twelve, you're going to have a prominent role judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You've got a prominent place in heaven and kingdom. That's a reward to the twelve. Pretty simple, pretty clear, right? We get that. What about the rest of us? Look at verse 29. Jesus continued, And everyone, everyone, that's us, that's me, that's you, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mother, children, farms, for my name's sake. Now you say, wait a minute, I gave my life to Jesus. I haven't had to give up all that. Two things. On one level, you have. Because to follow Jesus means that he becomes priority number one. I was listening to Andy Stanley preach this morning while we were getting ready on television. And um, he talked about how he and his wife both knew and were okay with the fact that when they got married, Jesus would always be more important in each of their lives than each other. Following Jesus means there's no one in your life more important than him. The flip side of that is following Jesus, making him priority number one in your life, means you will love your wife, your husband, your children, your parents better than ever. And if you're afraid to put Jesus absolutely number one in your life, then you're cheating your family of the greatest love you could possibly give them. But there's another, another thing. There are some, and, and, and by the way, farms, your business, your career, your paycheck, yeah, Jesus comes before all that as well. He's number one. He's Lord. That's what lordship means. So following Jesus is he's first. But there are people in this world who have to sacrifice in very real ways. Have you been listening to the news in recent days about the lady in the sedan? Who is, she's pregnant, she's married, she's, she's carrying her husband's child. But the Islamic court there has sentenced her once she gives birth to be hanged to death because they have accused her of, of apostasy. Her biological father who did not raise her was Muslim and in that country to convert from Islam to Christianity is a crime and you will be killed. And so there's you know, some outcry in the world today because they've sentenced her to death as soon as the baby is born. And that's an increasing issue in Islamic nations on this planet today that it is a crime to convert from Islam to anything else punishable by death. And that is happening in nation after nation after nation. 
Now, in America, it's more subtle than that. There are people who follow Jesus in America, and um, they'll have relatives, co-workers, classmates, friends who don't get them. It's, it's, you know, you're different now. What's wrong with you? You won't do what you used to do with me. You, you, you're, and they'll even say things like, you think you're better than me now. And so there are people in America who you lose some of the social interaction. You lose some of the social closeness with people in your life when you genuinely follow Christ because you living for Jesus is a reminder to them of what they need to be doing and they don't want to be reminded of it and so they will push and create distance. There are people in this church right now who are dealing with that. Husbands, wives who don't understand why their spouse wants to follow Jesus. Parents who don't get why their kids are acting. Are, are doing, you know, and, and so you, you've got friends. And so sometimes following Jesus means, yeah, you, there's sacrifice on a very real level. And you, you lose some stuff. But Jesus said to us, when that happens, and, and it happens not because you're you know, not, not, because, not, not when you lose friends and relatives because you're a nutcase or because you don't know how to treat people or you just have bad social skills, but when you lose them, he says, for my name's sake, because you are a devout, genuine, nice, kind, humble, genuine, real follower of Jesus Christ. When you lose people in your life because of that, he said, here's what's going to happen. You will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, following Jesus means, yes, you're forgiven, saved, and you have eternal life, you're going to heaven, but it also means you get a new family. Because you're going to, he says here, inherit many times as much as what you give up. So if you lose friends, you lose family, God's going to replace it in your life if you follow Jesus the right way. You get a new family. I saw that illustrated twice yesterday. Um... Michelle Bohr and her sister Rhonda, when they come, Rhonda's in the wheelchair, sit over here, and Rhonda can't be left alone. And so I got a call from Ron Goolsby. He was at the beach in North Carolina, I think fishing, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, and uh, Michelle's in his Sunday school class. She was taken to the hospital by ambulance with some chest pain. She's okay. She's okay. I was over at the hospital with her yesterday afternoon, and, and uh, she got a good report, so she, she, she got out. But as soon as that she started having that problem. What she'd do? She picked up the telephone. She called, started calling people in her Sunday school class, because there are people in her class who are committed to watching her sister Rhonda, who can't be left alone when there's a need. And so people were at the house. Someone from that Sunday school class got to the hospital quickly. And so here's two sisters who basically are alone in this community, but they're not alone because they got a family. So that's what God does. Now, Bert and Nancy are sitting over here. Had a wedding last night. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful wedding. Really was. And uh, I, I don't know the percentage, but a large number of the people here and at the reception last night were friends from church. And some of the ones who were shedding tears were friends from church. Now, that doesn't happen unless you... You engage in relationships. You engage in people's lives. Too many of us sit back and want everybody else to do it. No, you've got to engage yourself. And when you follow Christ and you, you follow the example that he and his disciples set of engaging, you will discover God is going to give you a family. 
But if you hold yourself back, ah, you're just going to be alone. But God says, I've got to, you become a member of my family. I'm going, I'm going to give you a new family. And I see this all the time when I do funerals. There is nine out of ten times, okay, there are exceptions, but nine out of ten times, there is a marked difference when I do the funeral for someone who's loved Jesus and been faithful and active with their Christian family compared to those that I do for someone who did not know Christ and was not active in the church. And the level of support, of human support, is markedly different. I see it over and over and over. And there are so many people in this world who are living in isolation. And there are some, some who are Christians and church members and come, who, who come to church, and you live that way because you limit yourself to this one hour in that chair on Sunday morning. And because of that, you isolate yourself from the family that God has given you when you became a follower of Jesus Christ. Number two, our new family is a different kind of family. Our new family is a different kind of family. Now, I've got a lot to look at. Turn to Matthew 12, okay? Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at three passages this morning. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was speaking... To the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside. Mary had other children. And so they and we and so they, they come to check on Jesus. We learn from one of the other gospels because they actually thought he was crazy. And they were coming to take him home. See, if Jesus had people in his family who at points didn't understand him, you follow Jesus, you're gonna have people you know who at points don't understand you. Okay? Don't let that throw you when that happens. And so someone in verse 47 said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And notice Jesus' response. It's interesting. Verse 48, He answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 49, And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, and Mark's gospel says he looked at them. So he looked at them and he pointed at them his disciples, his followers, and he said to the crowd, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, this new kind of family is different. Yeah, it's based on blood, but not biological blood. It's based on the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. It's through birth, but you're not born physically into the family. You're born spiritually into the family of God. But it's a family nonetheless. A family to whom you are to be committed just like you are committed to your earthly family. It's a spiritual family. And what binds us together is not geography, history, culture, personalities, similarities, what binds us together in this new, different kind of family is our shared experience in Jesus Christ. We're children of the King and therefore brothers and sisters. And that's a different kind of family. And God says that's the family that you are part of. 2001, some animals were rescued from a drug dealer who owned them but did not take care of them, abused them, neglected them. They were in pretty bad shape. <clears throat> Three of these animals, listen to this, were a, a lion, a tiger, and a black bear. 
predators who normally don't get along. But they've been raised together, abused together, hung out together, and they were best buds, if, if animals can be best buds. But when they were rescued, the animal sanctuary tried to separate them, thinking they would fight if they were put together. And when they separated them, it didn't go well. The animals acted out. They were not cooperative. And once they reunited the, the bear, the lion, and the tiger, when they reunited them, they calmed down started playing together, and here it is 13 years later, and they play together, they eat together, they sleep together, they cuddle together. A a tiger, a lion, and a bear, best buds. And see, Jesus can take people who are very different and make them a family because we've got the same father. Got the same father. We're in Christ. All right, number three. Our new kind of family. Now, this is important. Can you read that? Say that. Read that out loud in unison. Our new, come on, read with our new kind. Come on. Let's do that again. Our new kind of, one, two, three. Now, shout, the, the, shout out loudly the last two words. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not perfect. And you aren't either. (laughs) Did that feel good? This new family you're a part of is not perfect. It became imperfect the moment you became part of it. Right? Well, it was already imperfect. And you just made it more imperfect. It's not perfect. Look at Matthew 18. Okay? Matthew 18. Verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? When he makes me mad, when he hurts my feelings, when he lets me down, disappoints me, does something I don't like, does something wrong, when he messes up, how many times am I supposed to forgive him, forgive her? Seven times? And I can just imagine Peter smiling really big when he said seven times like he's being very, very generous. Isn't that a lot? Now, implied in that question is the imperfection of brothers and sisters. Right? When you read the Gospels and the interactions of Peter and the others, it's obvious sometimes they irritated each other. Now let me ask you a question. Anybody at church ever irritated you? In case you're afraid to answer, I'll answer and say, yeah, there are times some of you have irritated me. Now, don't be shocked. There's times I've irritated you. Like now. Okay. We're not perfect. It happens in church. It happens in your Sunday school class. By the way, 
in your family that you love with all your heart, y'all ever irritate each other? Ever disappoint each other? Ever let each other down? Ever hurt each other? Ever do wrong? Anybody in this room in a perfect family? Anybody? Well, what happens if you run from your family every time imperfection rears its ugly head? You'll spend your whole life running from person to person, family to family, being miserable and alone and wrecking relationships. Right? Same thing's true with your new Christian family. George Barna and his... uh, A group out in California did a survey last year asking adults, what do you think about going to church? 30% said it's very important. 40% of Americans said they were ambivalent about it, not sure. And 30% said it's not important at all. Among the millennial generation, those ages 35 and younger, of those who don't attend church, they gave their reasons for not attending. And the top three reasons were all equal in weight, that people 35 and younger don't go to church. Top three reasons, all equal in weight. Number one, moral failure of church leaders, hypocrisy, and the church's irrelevance to their life. I don't have time to break all of that down. Followers of Jesus, listen, followers of Jesus Christ are called to to a standard of righteous living, the values and ethics and morality. And most followers of Christ, genuine followers of Christ, live a good life. Most most clergy, the overwhelming majority of clergy are genuine and live a moral life. The bad apples get held up. That's, that's how we are as a culture, right? So yes, we're supposed to live a, a righteous life. But even with that, we're still not perfect. Moral failure happens. I mean, Peter, whom this sermon series is based on, was the very one who... who in a very difficult moment, cussed and denied that he ever knew Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible doesn't cover up the moral failures and shortcomings of those who follow God. Yes, we, we are called to high standard and we live a righteous life, but sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes we, sometimes intentionally and other times unintentionally we hurt somebody's feelings. That's life. And there are too many people, maybe you, you've been one of them. I, I want to challenge you not to be one of these in the future. Too many people church hop about every five to ten years they change churches. Now hear me. I'm here to help you, not necessarily make you feel good. Too many people hop from one church to another about every five or ten years because they get settled in and then something happens they don't like, somebody hurts their feelings and it's time to go. And they spend their whole adult life doing that about every five or ten years. And the problem is they're never going to find a church where eventually somebody's not going to hurt your feelings sometime. Eventually the preacher's not going to let you down. Eventually you're not going to be irritated. If you're looking for that, heaven, okay, that's it. (laughs) 
Your family in Christ is not perfect. Where, where do we get this idea that because we're called to a higher standard and we live righteously that there is no room for our humanity in the family of God? For the fact that, yes, I, we're, we're growing. I'm growing. You're growing. I started here and I'm headed there and I'm pressing on and you're pressing on. But guess what? I'm not up there yet. I'm somewhere in journey. And so are you. And it's about time, if you really want to get serious in following Jesus and in your spiritual growth, you stop abandoning Sunday school and your ministry teams and your churches because somebody hurt your feelings. Because eventually you're going to run out of places to run to. What did Jesus say about all this? Well, that brings me to the last point and how he finished this story. Number four. God expects us to be so committed to our new family that we forgive each other. God expects us to be so committed to our new family that we forgive each other. Have you ever had to forgive your spouse? Have you ever had to apologize to your spouse? Parents, grandparents, have you ever had to say to your kids or grandkids, I was wrong, I'm sorry? Have you ever had to forgive them for an indiscretion on their part? Sure. How do you have a home if you don't learn to apologize, if you don't learn to forgive? You're never going to have a lasting, healthy relationship until you learn to work through some stuff. The same thing's true with your Christian family. Maybe instead of looking for a new church, what you need to do is grow up and figure out, am I man enough, woman enough as a follower of Jesus Christ to try to work through that stuff? Jesus answers Peter well, all right, seven times. Verse 22, Jesus said, nope, Peter, not seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 490. So the 491st, does that mean I'm... No. Seven is the divine number. Multiplying it means infinity. And so Jesus tells a parable, a story to illustrate the point. He said, the kingdom of heaven, God's family, God's kingdom is like a king who wanted to settle all of his accounts with his slaves. And these would be what we would, in our American history, would call indentured, indentured servants, people who were in debt and therefore they became servants or slaves to the person they owed money. Okay? Indentured servitude. And he said to settle his accounts, he, he brought in one indentured servant, one slave, who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one talent was worth a year's wages for the average worker in Jesus' time. So I want to put this in perspective. Okay? 10,000 talents. No, and, and, and one talent was 15 years. I'm sorry, 15 years. 15 years. 15 years. And a thousand? You do the math. Big 
big debt. And, um, and so the king wanted, wanted payment. And in verses 25 and following, he, he ordered that this, this slave and all of his family and all of his possessions be sold to settle part of the debt. And in verse 26, the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before the king, began pleading with him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord, the king, in verse 27, felt compassion. And he released him and forgave him all the debt. Wow. What would, what would that be? 150,000 a, a, a years of debt? That's a lot of debt. Wages. Now notice what, what happened. Jesus said, then, then that servant, that slave that, who had been forgiven his debt, went out and found one who owed him money. Owed him 100 denarii. A denarius was one day's wage, so he owed him 100 days' wages. What is that, about three months? Over three months. He'd been, he had been forgiven 150,000 or however many. I, I can't do math right now when I'm preaching, but a lot of years debt. And he's got this dude that owes him three months debt. And what does he do? Seized him, choked him, and said, pay me what you owe me. And then that, that guy fell to the ground and said, have patience with me, and I'll pay you back. Verse 30, but he was unwilling, and he had him thrown in prison. He was going to confiscate everything. And other slaves saw what happened, and they, weren't, they, they thought, thought, he's a jerk. And uh, in verse 31, they went and reported to their Lord, to the king, what had happened. And in verse 32, the king summoned the guy he'd forgiven all that debt. And he said to him, this is a quote in verse 32, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And moved with anger. He handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. Then Jesus summarized it for, for us in verse 35. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. See, the forgiveness wasn't based on merit. It was based on compassion. And Jesus is saying, you want me to forgive you? You want me to forgive you every sin you've ever committed. You want me to forgive you and rescue you from hell. You want me to forgive you and give you my home in heaven. And you're not willing to work, to even work at trying to forgive a brother or sister in your church or in your Sunday school class. And Jesus said it doesn't work that way. See, following him means he gives us a family. It's a different kind of family but as a family to whom we are to be committed. So let me ask as I wrap this up and we'll get ready to have an invitation. Is there someone to whom you need to go and apologize? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to stop avoiding? 
Do you need to start hanging out with your Christian family? Do you need to get plugged into Sunday school or church ministry group or team, a small group class, church activities, and so on? Do you, do you need to stop waiting for everyone else to reach out to you, but instead you take the initiative and involve yourself, engage yourself in the life of this church, in the groups of this church? Are you willing to love your, your new family, even though it's not perfect? And people in it will make mistakes. It's just hard to keep following Jesus while you're running from his people. Did you hear me? It's hard to follow Jesus while you're running from his bride, running from his body, running from his people. It's really hard to follow Jesus because he's with his bride, with his body, with his people. He loves them. And he died for them. I told you this was going to challenge some of you. But that's a good thing, isn't it? Because, listen, growth always means change. 